The following teaching is brought to you by Crosspoint Church. For sermon notes and other resources, visit go to crosspoint.com. If you're not laughing, you probably don't know what that is, and that tells you how old I am. Now, one of the things that would happen on Sesame Street is you get all these lessons, and you would start learning these things to prepare for preschool. So one of the things, for example, you would learn about comparison. And the way that they taught comparison, would they sang this little jingle, and it went like this. One of these things is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong. Can you tell which thing is not like the other by the time I finish my song? Now, so they would have this video playing, and they would show like four balloons, and three were blue, and one was red, or four dogs. One is small, and the other are large, right? And so clearly, you can tell this one belong, or this one doesn't belong, these belong. Well, I had a red balloon moment many years ago. I spent about five years as a youth pastor up on the central coast, and the church decided it because it didn't have a, a building, there would be a wise investment for us to buy this van so that I could spend all my time taking youth all over the city. So we bought this brand new, huge 15-passenger white van, and the church also decided to change its logo and its font to this bright red lettering all over the van, right? So nowhere in the county could I go and anybody not know where this place was. So this could get you in trouble based on the behavior of the students in your car, and anybody could call and let you know that something was going on with your church van. And then one time, we took this van to Mexico, and this eight- or nine-hour drive, we get down there, we go to Rosarito Beach this specific time, and what we would do on every one of these trips, the final night, is to celebrate what God has done, all the hard work that these kids had put forward, would be to go out to kind of like an authentic taqueria or a restaurant. Well, this year we ended up in the part of town in Rosarita that has like all the wild bars, right? So what, Senior Frogs and Papas and Beer, whatever these places are, right? And so the music is loud and people are walking everywhere and these guys are in the street trying to pull you into their restaurant like, free tequila shots, come on over, Right? just going wild. And here I have all these middle schoolers and high schoolers in the van. And we get close to this restaurant and these guys pull up and they look at the red lettering, right? And they're like, oh, church, church. And they back away from the van and they're all laughing and everybody in the van is laughing. And clearly we were something that did not belong in that part of town. Have you ever had an experience like that where you felt like you just didn't belong? Maybe early high school, right? You show up and you go to PE class and you're in these ridiculous outfits, short shorts and t-shirt, and everybody else is like twice your size. Like they hit puberty in third grade and you're still waiting for it. Or maybe you are in math class and they have all these letters written up on the whiteboard and you're like, math has letters too? What's this all about? Maybe you move to a new town. Maybe you moved across the country, and you're in the central part of the country, and you're like, hey, where's the In-N-Out Burger? What's going on here? Uh, Or why are these people all talking funny? When you realize, well, maybe I guess I'm the one who's talking funny. And the culture is totally different, and the traffic's different, and things smell um, very unique uh, from the way that you're used to. 
Or maybe you've been in a place in your life where because of your faith, you have felt like you didn't belong. Maybe the values that your family has, has had has led you and your family to be the ones ostracized in your neighborhood. You definitely don't belong. You have made these choices about your kids that no, they can't do everything that those other kids get to do. And they feel like they're the only ones who are left out. Maybe at work, you refuse to compromise when everybody else is compromising in a certain area. And you stand out that way. And you feel judged and maybe even hated. And you feel the stares of people around you looking. So what is it that you and I as followers of Jesus Christ need to do when we feel like we don't belong? Well, the answer to that is going to come from the book of Acts chapter 17. We are tonight at episode 42 in Acts, which has gone on for like six years now, right? Now, Acts is the story of what happens in the early church. So the four Gospels tell the life of Jesus. Jesus at the end dies. He rises from the dead. And the beginning of Acts tells us that Jesus rises to heaven. And the church waits for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit arrives and the church starts to take off. Now two of the central characters in the book of Acts are these guys named Peter and Paul. Peter was one of Jesus' disciples. And Peter is this guy that antagonizes Christians when we first meet him. He persecutes them, and he sees even to their death. And then he literally sees the light. He has this interaction with Jesus, and he turns his life completely around, and he becomes the most prominent carrier of the gospel in the Mediterranean. Everywhere he goes, he's preaching Jesus Christ. Paul is this guy who's incredibly bold and has courage and is never short for words. But as Dave read, he gets to this city called Athens. And maybe for the first time, he doesn't know what to say. He's completely caught off guard. Last week, we find out that Paul is in a city called Berea, and he's with Timothy and Silas, and he leaves. His, his friends are like, get out of town before you're killed for carrying the gospel. And so he goes to Athens. And so he's waiting for his two friends there. And he gets here, and this city is unlike anything that he has ever seen before. Now that is saying something for a guy that in his life will have walked hundreds, not thousands of miles all throughout the Mediterranean and has seen so many different things. But Athens is unlike anything else. He gets there and he sees completely different architecture. He would see the Parthenon, right? This huge temple to the goddess Athena. Athens is a place of great learning. It's home to a university. It's this scholarly community. Four or five hundred years. This is Plato. This is Aristotle. This is where they were. And he looks around and he sees statues and idols and these gods that people are worshiping. And he seems to have this physiological response that he's just in distress at what he's seen. One equivalent in my life that I can think of where I felt this spiritual distress was a mission trip that I took as a high school kid. Just finished high school, went to Southeast Asia, went to a very, very poor area. And the missionaries that we were with took us around town. And one specific thing that we saw were these huts. And inside these huts, we saw the faces of women that peeked out and a few girls as young as the age of 12. 
and they told us these are the brothels. And it was just a stunning experience, just complete distress, didn't know how to process that, still stirring with that one decades later. What Paul does when he gets to all these towns, the first place that he goes is to the synagogue. He goes to find the Jews to say, hey, Jesus is the Messiah that we have been waiting for for so long. But Athens is a little bit different. He goes to the synagogue, but then he also goes to the marketplace. He goes to where these scholars, these philosophers, spend their time debating. And they're debating in a place called the Areopagus. It's the Greek term for the hill of Ares. Ares was the god of war. The Roman equivalent was Mars. So this is Mars Hill, if you've heard that reference before. And he debates with all these philosophers. And a couple subsets of groups of these philosophers include a group named the Epicureans and the Stoics. And the Epicureans believe that the body and the soul are mortal. So when you're dead, that's it. No life, no eternal life, nothing whatsoever. So they have this very unimportant, passive view of God. And life for them is all about pleasure. The Stoics are the complete opposite. They oppose pleasure. They accept their lot in life. If they're living in great pain, oh well. This is what the deal is. They too believe that the bodies are mortal and there's some sense of immortality for them as well, but they get absorbed back into God, whoever this God is. But it doesn't seem much different to me than the Epicureans. And now these two philosophies of Stoicism and Epicureanism seem very strange to us. But just as strange as that is to us, so was the gospel that Paul was preaching to them. You see, Paul was taken to this council. The council is also known as the Areopagus. So it's a place and it's a group. And this council had some sort of influence in town. Um, some kind of ways to um, judge the folks that are in there or not. Some kind of connection with the university. We don't know the specifics. And we're going to pick up the story there from when, where Dave left off. We're looking at the book of Acts chapter 17. If you have one of these Bibles, which you'll find in the chairs underneath you, it's on page 922. And we're starting with verse 22. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God, whom you worship without knowing, is the one I'm telling you about. So Paul begins his defense in front of this council. He's, we find out that he's kind of dragged there. It isn't something that he went, through volu- went to voluntarily. He was kind of like forced to go in front of this council. And he starts by trying to build this bridge. He tries to establish common ground. Hey, you guys are religious. I'm religious. We both think about those things. One of the other letters that he wrote in the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, tells us, I become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, I might save some. Establishing common ground for Paul is so important because he loves Jesus. He loves the people, and he knows that people are so different. He he finds different topics of conversation in order to make connections with them. And he says, hey, 
I've noticed with all these statues that you have all throughout town, there's one specific one that is dedicated to an unknown God. And you yourselves have admitted there's something that we're missing. We can't put our finger on it, but we're missing something. And so he attempts to put these puzzle pieces together. Continuing with verse 24. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. And human hands can't serve his needs. For he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything. And he satisfies every need. He's explaining that this unknown God is unlike any of the other gods that they are worshiping. Any of these other idols. He said, this God cannot be contained in these statues that you've made. This God cannot even be contained in this huge temple that you've made. He's way bigger than that. He created you. He created heaven. He created earth. And every breath that you breathe is a gift of this God. Verse 26. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall. And he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek him, to seek after God, and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Paul makes a second connection with these people. You guys believe that we are the offspring of this creator. I believe that we are the offspring of our creator. And he explains to them, this God has been involved in history. He's been moving like chess pieces. Like he is orchestrating things. He has known when these nations and where these nations would be. And it is so important for him because he organized it that way to connect with them, to reveal himself to these nations, which is an amazing thought on the side. Like, think of all the nations in the past that have terrible reputations, yet God's original hope was to connect with them, to reveal himself to them. Verse 29. And since this is true, Paul continues, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen for gold, from gold or silver or stone, God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times. But now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. Okay, this is where, to me, the the speech, this defense, like shifts course, right? Paul has been like, I'm putting my arms around you. Let's share these things in common. And then he goes for it, right? He takes this huge, brave step. And he says, all right, can we be real for a moment here? You guys said that we are his offspring. Yet how is it that you are worshiping this thing that you made? And it's stone or gold or silver. God is the creator. God is not your creation. And then he takes an even braver step. And he says, look, this cute little game that you've been playing, it's over. 
This ignorance of God, of your creator, this is actually your choice. You have chosen to ignore who God is. And it's tolerated no longer, and you have to be held accountable for it. In fact, you're going to be judged for the way that you believe. So what you need to do is you need to repent now. Wow. (laughs) It got real. It got quiet. And Paul just went for it. Verse 32. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt. But others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them. I find this completely fascinating. Paul has taken them to task, right? He's like, God is your creator. This unknown God that you think of, this is the one who has created you. He has been involved in history. And you have been ignorant of him. You have been so foolish. You're worshiping statues. You're worshiping rocks. And he's tolerated it. And now you're going to be judged. Right? Like, woof. That's a little bit too much, Paul, right? He just went for it. But what is it these guys are offended at? Where does this conversation stop? It's the moment he mentions risen from the dead. This group of people are offended at the resurrection. Nothing else that we know of. It's the resurrection where you hear the record scratches. The music stops and everybody stares like, what did you say? Risen from the dead? That's ridiculous. This conversation is over. And we find out two verses later in 18.1 that Paul leaves town. (laughs) That's it. He just walks away and he's done. Now, what seems on the surface, a group of people that are scholarly, that are wise, that are just curious about life and curious about God, who may be just struggling with the resurrection, is something that we need to take a harder look at. Do not let them off the hook. Do not romanticize this group of people. We find out in verse 21 that Dave read that they spend all their time debating. Talk, talk, talk. That's all they did. Were they seeking truth or was this just like their pastime? What they did for fun. These are intelligent people, right? A university town and they worship rocks. And then we find out that these quote unquote civilized people, not from this passage, but if you do your, if you do your homework, you find out that around about this time in history, they start to fall in love with the gladiator games. So for the fun of it, they watch people in an arena kill each other for sport. This is the civilized city of Athens that we're looking at. There's a lot of hypocrisy when we find out this information. These people essentially are self-centered. They're arrogant. And for all intents and purposes, they are the creator, right? They're creating these statues Life and the world revolves around them. They are the center of the universe. 1 Corinthians 1, 23, Paul also says, So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the central event of our faith. 
It offended them then. 2,000 years later, it still offends now. The resurrection is what differentiates us from all other faiths. And this passage, Acts 17, Mars Hill, is so relevant. I mean, there's so much that we can unpack. We could spend episode 43, 44 on this. Something that you should go home and read over and over again. You may know that there are different churches across the country that have been named Mars Hill. I mean, people, these churches have established to say, hey, look, uh, just as different as Paul's speech was to the people in Athens, so are the people around us different from us. And here we are in this foreign land trying to communicate with people who have all sorts of wild beliefs. And can we not say that we live in Athens, California? I know there's like an Athens, Georgia, and Tennessee, and Ohio, but there's no Athens, California, as far as I, as far as I know of. But Athens, California is where we live. We have so many people that are educated, that use their brains and their skills to make ridiculous amounts of money and have significant capabilities, and they take them far in life. How about Epicureans? Do you think we have any people that seek pleasure and nothing else? Absolutely. We have wineries, we have restaurants, we have a casino, we have kids' sports, swimming pools, gyms, cars, houses. Uh, Do we have Stoics? There may be a few people that just, you know, sink in and take in the depression of life and don't have any hope whatsoever and have said, this is my lot in life and there's no joy because they don't know Jesus. And when we confront Athens with the resurrection of Jesus, there are some people that honestly wrestle with that. They're like, yeah, this Jesus character, I, I respect him. I like him, but I don't know if I believe that he's, he is who he said he is. Or that story about Jonah, really a fish, and that Noah guy in the boat, eh, I don't know. I, I, I want to know more. And this group of people also watches and listens to stuff that Christians do and say. The few that get on television and berate immigrants and objectify women. And they look like, wait, are these people speaking on behalf of Jesus? I don't think I want anything to do with that guy. I would say that some of those folks in that category who are doubting but kind of seeking fall in to Crosspoint's mantra, all kinds of people discovering and following Jesus. Now, there's another group of our fellow Athenians here in Athens, California. And these folks just could care less, right? Life is good. Life is about me. Life is about my idols. I got my stuff. I'm a happy guy. I got my cars. I got my money. Uh, so many sexual cons- conquests that I need to make. This is, this is what life is all about. Basically, they just worship themselves. And out of this group, you might hear the words, you know, all religions are really the same. Back when I went to university at a public school, um, we brought in uh, this, this apologist, this guy who professionally could debate with different people. Super smart guy who could take on anybody about the most difficult topics about the existence of God and Christianity and suffering and all that kind of stuff. 
And so he'd come once a year and spend like three, four days, and he'd go to these populated places of campus. He'd start off with a 10-minute talk, and then he would answer questions. And he got into these really heated debates. Uh, This guy's name is Cliff Connectly. I checked out his website. He's still uh, doing the same kind of thing. You can check out his website, givemeananswer.org. But one of the things that I noticed that he did was that when a student would come up and say something like, eh, all those religions, they're all the same. He took them the task. He went after them. He's like, no, 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 no. You are being lazy. That is a cop-out. You need to do your research and then come back with an honest, good, intelligent answer. Sometimes with people like, they don't care, whatever, it's all the same. In some ways, we just have to ignore them. And that sounds a little bit harsh, but essentially what we need to do is pray for those folks in a respectful way, pray for their misery, and not that life would be awful for them, but they would get to a point in their life where they realize and recognize that they can't do it on their own and that they need Jesus. It's the prayer of misery. For anybody who is a seeker, anybody who's ignorant or lazy, Everybody on this planet has to reckon with the resurrection. You can't ignore it. You can't put your fingers in your ears, cover your eyes. You have to address it. You have to figure out where you stand on it. Pastor Andy Stanley says it this way. If somebody predicts their own death and resurrection and then they pull it off, you better pay attention. When Paul goes to this group of Ath- in Athens, these doubters, he feels that moment distressed. He is out of place. And when he is taken from the synagogue to the marketplace, I like to think that he gets there right in front of everybody and he closes his eyes for a moment, takes a deep breath, and he says, there is no God like our God. There is no God like our God. And at that moment, he starts to preach the good news that there is a God who created us, who is the founder of every single one of our movements and our existence, who pursues us and has pursued nations for centuries, who gave his life for us. And he cheerfully responds, there is no God like our God. But at that moment, at the same time, he speaks hard truths. If you have your Bibles with you, turn just a couple pages to the book of Romans, chapter 1. This is page 935, if you have one of these Bibles. This is also something that Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome, starting with verse 18. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols 
made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. Paul tells them, you are not the creator. You are not the center of the universe. You are the created. You have to reckon with the resurrection. Your ignorance is no longer an excuse. And judgment is coming. And there are so many lessons from this passage for us. We could spend so much time unpacking this. If you're here tonight and you have not made a decision to follow Jesus and you're still checking this thing out, I'm so thankful that you're here tonight. But the next few words are essentially for those of us who are followers of Jesus. Like Paul, you and I, Christians, live in the synagogue and in the marketplace. In the place of faith and a life of faith and in the secular world. And the things that Paul felt addressing that group are the things that you and I feel often. Maybe stares, maybe fear, maybe hatred because of what we stand for. Maybe it's like me as a high school freshman walking in and I'm half the size of everybody else walking around in my corduroy OP shorts. Going to a high school dance after having gone to a Christian school for eight years where we weren't even allowed to have dances. And they go to this dance and I like almost fell over seeing what people were doing there. Thinking, whoa. I'm supposed to be at this high school, but I don't think that I belong here. But I am confident, and you are confident as well, that there is no God like our God. But what is it that we do when we feel completely out of place? I've got five things for you. Here's your fill-in-the-blank chance. Ask yourself these five things. Ready? Number one, are you distressed? Are you distressed at the idols that are around you? You know the phrase that we are supposed to be living in the world, but not of the world. Or are we worshiping them too? You and I, to a certain degree, need to feel out of place. If you feel like you don't belong that might tell you that you're just where God wants you. Do you spend life worshiping yourself? Are you just playing church on Saturday nights? Or are you living out that same faith seven days a week? Crosspoint Church, does this place, the synagogue, look any different from the marketplace? Are we acting like we are the created? Are we humble? Are we submissive? Second question to ask yourself, are you praying? Do you know what your neighbor's names are? Do you know what your neighbors do for a living? Do you know about their grandkids? Do you know their pets' names? Do you know the most traumatic event in their life? Why not? We highlighted earlier these cards. Who's your one more? Who are you praying for? need to write down that name of somebody who's lost. Or keep a list. Write down a list, keep one on your phone, and refer to it on a daily basis. Where is that list? Who's your one more? Number three, are you finding commonality? Are you finding commonality? The uh, Nebraska-Iowa border 
between Omaha and Council Bluffs has this pedestrian bridge. And it's named after a guy named Bob Carey, and they call it Bob the Bridge, right? And I follow this Bob the Bridge on Instagram. It's probably the most unexciting Instagram post you have ever subscribed to. But it's funny because the pictures are all the same. In the middle of this pedestrian bridge is this line marking the border between the two states. And it says Iowa here and Nebraska here. And you see people taking pictures of their feet where they're in two places at the same time. Paul tells us, I have become all things to all people so that by all means I can save some. We are living in this tension. We have our foot in one world and the other foot in the other world. We need to be in the world, but not of the world, but balancing and reaching out and finding commonalities with people, even if they're very different from us. And following up with this is the fourth question. Are you speaking the truth in love? That same church van I told you about, the bright white one with red lettering, it made also another infamous trip one summer, about 20 years ago, where we, I took my middle school students to camp in Santa Rosa, which is on the north side of the bay, about an hour away. And did you know that Highway 101 actually goes right through San Francisco? So before I had one of these, we just said, well, let's just follow 101. Well, on that Sunday afternoon, these students, 20, 30, 40 of them, from a very small town of 5,000, whose parents moved there to put them in a bubble and not see the real world, went through the Gay Pride Festival. And I'm not talking about, like, the respectful protest and billboards. This was, like, music as loud as you've ever heard and people with as little clothing and wild clothing throwing condoms everywhere and people spitting on the van. It was—and we were in traffic, and it took us an hour to get through the city— it was this wild, wild moment. But the biggest thing I took away from that with the people mocking the van and spitting on the van is like, wow, we Christians have not been kind to the gay community. And even though, and I'm of the conviction that yes, acting out on homosexuality is a sin, I can honestly say that in my experience with churches, we have not been Respectful. We have not engaged in dialogue. We have judged. We have made that sin a worse sin than others. And so I felt that hatred and just felt at a loss because we as a church, even I myself, hadn't spoken the truth in love. Ephesians 4 says, Instead, we speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. And that means speaking bold and hard truths. That yes, there is absolute truth. And yes, there is judgment. And yes, on certain topics, this is the way that I believe that God sees it. But the problem is that sometimes our motive is wrong. And that we lash out instead of loving. And becoming all things to all people means loving them. So in your interactions with other people, do you talk at them or do you talk to them? What are you doing on social media? Is it, is it inspired by anger, hatred, 
or is there an honest desire to learn? The fifth question to ask, are you preaching, are you preaching there is no God like our God? Are you putting the pieces together for people? Are you trying to make this connection of the unknown God that look at the earth and the sky and the invisible qualities of our God? Are you conveying the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, of his love? Are you doing so in actions and in words? I'm going to invite the van to come forward. In a moment, you're going to have uh, an opportunity to respond to what God is saying to you specifically. You you can do that through music. You can do that through um, remembering the Lord's Supper at one of the four communion tables. You can also go to the back of the room and somebody's there would love to pray with you with whatever's going on in life right now. But to me, right now, there's so much in our country that reminds us, that reminds me of ancient Athens. Where on the surface, we talk about being a Christian nation and there's bits and pieces and hints of it and our money says, and God, we trust on it. And a lot of people worship God and a lot of people are seeking God. But we also have so much money. We live in opulence. Often we find ourselves worshiping ourselves. And I dare say we've got gladiator games going on. Just in the last couple weeks, 18-year-old kid from New York drives up, takes his twisted understanding of who God is, and justifies the murder of people. And in Dallas, Texas, three people, because of their race, are gunned down in a hair salon. Yes, the resurrection offends so many. But I think sometimes, too, that the divisiveness within our own Christian church may even offend more. But here's the good news. not a hopeless situation. The very last verse of chapter 17, 34 says, but some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the council, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. It worked. The Holy Spirit even moved in that crazy town. And if the Holy Spirit can move then, the Holy Spirit's moving here. God takes us and all of our brokenness and our sin, and he pursues the hopeless, he mends the broken, and he loves the unlovely. And lives are changed because there is no God like our God. Let's pray. God, tonight, so many here are broken offended, lost, hurting, or not knowing what to say. There's not a single person in this room, God, that you are not madly in love with and pursuing. No matter how broken we are. And we thank you for that deep love. And we ask God in all humility that you would use us broken as we are 
to, to unite others, to be agents of healing. We thank you that there is no God like you, God. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. For more resources, check out go to crosspoint.com.